Hi, friends and taphophiles. I'm your host, Lachelle. We have a special anniversary today. Stones, Bones, and Shadows is one year old. Let's go! We are celebrating with a different kind of episode today. We are going back and reliving some of our favorite moments. What lies beneath? A creepy party. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. I've got the whole gang here to celebrate. We have loved every minute of making the podcast a reality, and our first year has been full of learning, growth, laughter, and tears. We are bringing you a special episode today full of all of our favorite stories and moments from this first year's on Stones, Bones, and Shadows. We are each going to share one of our little favorites, and we are going to be starting with Mr. Brad. All right, Brad, you're up. You've been on a couple episodes. Which is your favorite? I like the the episode about Augustine El Peludo Chacon. <laughs> That's right. Hombre muy bravo. He was something. He was, and he taught the clinic on how to stall a hanging. He sure did. So we're going to play you a piece of this episode where they have finally caught El Peludo, and he is going to hang, but he's going to stall it as long as possible. Chacon was wearing a new black suit and was cleanly shaven except for his mustache. With a sure step, he mounted the scaffolds and calmly surveyed the approximately 50 spectators who crowded the tiny courtyard. Many more were roosting in the surrounding trees, morbidly waiting to view the death drop. Wow. By the scaffold rested a crude coffin which Chacon eyed with disdain. The air was chilly, but the Arizona sun was shining brightly. Chacon commenced with a speech which he had received permission to make from Sheriff Parks, Albert Sames, recorded Chacon's last words. He really milked this because he spoke slowly. Everything he said had to be translated. He really got his money's worth out of his final last words. It did. It felt like he was kind of just like, all right, I have something I want to say. And he gives his big lug speech. So it seems like, yeah, he was trying to draw out the time until he had to swing. So here's Chacon's last words. I have much to say, the doomed man commenced, and then asked for a cup of coffee, which he received. He then began a Because <laughs> he needs his coffee before he, before he dies. I'd hate to fall asleep at my hanging. <laughs> then he began a lengthy speech, which was largely a denial of the many crimes in which he had been accused. After talking for possibly ten minutes, he asked for cigarette papers, wrote himself a cigarette, and commenced... It's nothing but right that when one is going to die that he be given a few moments of time to quietly smoke a cigarette, he said. Resuming his talk till near 30 minutes had elapsed since the time he mounted the scaffold, concluding with these words, 
According to my understanding and knowledge, the law is dealt out slowly but surely with dumb instruments. <laughs> the law never lets up and never gets out of order. If any of you intend to leave, I would like to have you all remain until the last moment. And now I would like to smoke a cigarette slowly. <laughs> he sat down on the scaffold, wrote another cigarette, <laughs> smoked it slowly. <laughs> Then he was questioned, is that all? And Chacon replied, si, es todo. That's it. Then his friends were able to shake hands with him. While meeting his friends, he requested that he be permitted to live until three o'clock, but broke off his leave-taking on being informed that his leave-taking time was now up. It's too late now, he told a party waiting to bid him goodbye. Time to hang. <laughs> Hey, his priorities. Oh, that is just classic. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Brad. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, so next up is Taylor. You've been on lots of episodes, and of course you've edited every single episode. I know you'll feel a little like me, like every episode is like one of my children, so I love them all. But which clip are you going to choose to share with the audience today? One of my absolute favorites is in the beginning, you and I did Bonnie and Clyde, which is oh, a two-parter, yeah. and it's classic. I mean, it's a great, funny, silly, you and I are being kind of ridiculous we <laughs> during the whole ridiculous. thing. Yeah. But yeah, good time. yeah, one of my absolute favorite parts is towards the end of the second one, which is kind of silly because we're talking about like how they died and like <laughs> what happened to their bodies afterwards and oh, all the okay. chaos. But it's uh, it was so ridiculous that it almost seemed a little comical. Exactly, exactly. So here's the clip. In 16 seconds, it was all over. Except that loggers and farmers came to see what all the noise was, and as Frank Hamer and a few of the other posse that consisted of other government agencies went into town to call and report to their bosses that they had them and that they were dead, the other men that were left to guard the bodies in the car were having a hard time dealing with the crowd. Like, people just started showing up, which is crazy. You wouldn't think that there would be that many people, but people just start showing up and then they were like oh it's bonnie and clyde and so they started picking things up and digging bullets out of nearby trees and even went as far as trying to cut bonnie's dress with a pair of scissors get a piece of the gory fabric cut locks of her hair a man even tried to cut off clyde's ear what and another was trying to cut off clyde's trigger finger what oh why? Why? There are some crazy people. Hey, you see here in this bottle? See this finger? Yeah. <laughs> it's Clyde Barrels. This is Clyde Barrels' trigger finger. I got me his trigger finger. <laughs> what? What is going on in their minds? Why would you want his ear of all the things? I am so pissed. <laughs> yeah. That's too much. What is what is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? Goodness. <laughs> Maybe in a way, because they kind of were celebrities at this point. It wasn't just that they were outlaws. Yeah. They were celebrities. And so, right. I mean, think of all the things that are like on eBay. You know, where it was like yeah. Beyonce's toothbrush or something like that. And people are just like, ah, I need that toothbrush. Isn't that nuts? What the actual heck? I don't. 
think I would ever walk up to a celebrity, a dead celebrity, and be like, hmm, I should cut off their finger. That seems like a great idea. <laughs> then I could just I know. keep it in this bottle for the rest of my life and pass it on to my kids. That's insane. Nasty. Ugh. They didn't get away. You know, they were able to get them back. So they didn't actually cut. They didn't actually cut off his finger or his ears, but they were trying to. But still, it's Ugh. still insane. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As we do that at the same time. Yeah, I can say it. <laughs> As you can see, we were being a little silly, but... I mean, it's ridiculous. Why would you cut off someone's finger? Like, what would you plan on doing with it after? Keeping it in the bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Tell everybody that you have it. (laughs) (laughs) This is Clyde Burrow's trigger finger. (laughs) All right, Marcus, let's get you in here next. What is your favorite moment? Or one of them. So, <laughs> so Marcus, tell us about one of your favorite moments. One of my favorite moments was in the Silverton episode that I did with you. Partially because my grandma's a real big Gunsmoke fan, and she told me this. <laughs> she said she loved this episode because it reminded her of Gunsmoke. So, oh, yeah. Grandma, if you're listening, this is for, this you. for you. And uh, we were talking about... Uh, Shootout. Some sort of a fight back in that time, and there was some... Uh, some language being spoken. <laughs> and uh, we had some pretty fun times with you reading that story. Yeah, fun. <laughs> and Taylor had fun. And Taylor had fun with the editing of that. Yeah, there's some, uh, some uh, interesting cover ups for the bad words going on. So it's a good episode. It reminds me of my grandma and Gunsmoke. This is Murder and Mayhem. In 1883, when he was. 27 years old, Harry was involved in a fatal shooting incident in Silverton. He and a man named Charlie Hill were rivals in the express business in Silverton. And for some months, there had been trouble and unpleasant verbal exchanges between the two men whenever they met. The, yeah, the, the ill feeling culminated in a confrontation at the depot on a cold November morning when the men, both armed, renewed their quarrel. See, that's the hard thing about the Old West is... See your rival again? You gotta settle it. And they all brought their guns. Yeah. And that's how they settled everything. They're carrying the heat. They're always ready. Mm Mm-hmm. Gotta end it. Took things very personally back then. Reports said that they were shouting profanities and obscenities. Hill pointed his gun at White and shouted, Now shoot, you son of a... (laughs) and both men fired. Mm. Nine shots were fired, five by Hill and four by White. White was not touched, but his first bullet struck Charlie in the hip, passed through his groin, severed a blood vessel, and caused severe hemorrhage. Wow. That's not good. That's not good at all. At first, it was thought that he would recover. Nine days later, the 22-year-old Charlie Hill died. Sorry, Charlie. Oh, no. See what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> so here is Harry's version of what happened. 
I'm sure it's gonna be much different. Harry's version, he's the one that shot and is alive, was given in November 1883, was, I had been hauling Mr. Burbage's Express up from the depot and Hill did not like it. Hill went to Burbage and told him he would do his hauling for nothing rather than let me have it. So Burbage told White this, and when White saw Hill again said, do you know what I think of you? Tell I him. think you're a <laughs> son of a <laughs> That's right, you let him know. <laughs> and Hill told White that he had to take that back, which he declined to do. Of course do. he did, of course. And Hill said, well, you, you will take it back uh -huh. or I will kill you. Get him. And the best thing you can do is fix yourself. Woo! That's Which heat. means, yep. you better get your gun, buddy. Mm -hmm. You better get the heat. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that is great. Thanks, Marcus. And actually, I think my favorite part of that is when it's talking about that he is hemorrhaging profusely and you go, wow, that is not good. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> hemorrhaging is never good. <laughs> Note to everybody. <laughs> all right, Rhett, get in here. It's your turn. I'm so grateful you guys all want to get involved in my crazy scheme for this <laughs> podcast. I just have appreciated all of you so much. Rhett, you've been on some episodes yourself and yeah. the first one that you and I did together about Windsor Ruins yeah. in Mississippi. I mean, that's really one of my favorites too. Yeah. It's just... And I just took like what you were going to say. <laughs> no, you're good. Oh, <laughs> Honestly, it's just like, it was just kind of like, I lived in Georgia for two years and it was just kind of like, I was reading about, you know, Georgia and kind of like my second home and just like the people there and their funny experiences and stuff. It's just, it was so much fun and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, so we got to talk a little bit about the South, set it up just a little bit, Red. So it takes place during the Civil War and they have the Confederates, right, at, at their big old mansion and they're, you know, Southerners, we know how to party. And so they're having this big old shindig and... Uh, Shindig. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon it was a good old shindig. That's how you know it's a southern party. Like southerners, we know how to party. Brett's fully embraced being a southerner now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they're just having this huge party, and then the and union they have shows some up. Of the Confederate soldiers that are there at this dinner party. Yeah. All right, let's listen to the clip. Though the South was in the midst of the war, the widow Catherine had still tried to make things, I guess, a little more normal for her friends mm. and family. And on at least one occasion, she invited a few neighbors and several Confederate officers over for a dinner. When she was ready for her guests, she sent a signal to her neighbors, family, and some Confederate officers. But what she didn't know was that the seemingly clandestine signal from the cupola this time also alerted Union troops who picked up the signal. As her guests were enjoying the party, Catherine was surprised by a knock at the door. Thinking it was some latecomers, the servant opened the door to the men and welcomed them in. These men, however, were not neighbors. They were Union soldiers dressed in civilian clothing, 
and had come to capture the rebels. One of the officers later told the story to his family in a letter saying, quote, So we entered, and there in the parlor of the house was quite a party, singing and laughing and having a fine time generally. Among them were three Confederates dressed in their gray uniforms. I walked in and went up to the one that seemed to be in command, touched him on the shoulder and inquired, Are you a Confederate officer? He promptly replied, Yes, I am. At this, the singing stopped and the ladies present came around and insisted that we Yankees were not gentlemen <laughs> and that we should not spoil their evening by arresting and taking prisoners these three Confederates. The ladies grew very boisterous and attacked us with their fists and fingernails and refused <laughs> to allow their arrest. That's, you know, just obvious. Never, never stop a Southern party. Uh, that is great. You see with their little fans and their fingernails going around. You are no gentleman. How dare you interrupt our party? Are you going to arrest these guys in front of us during this party? You can't wait till afterwards. How rude. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's where they get the term, damn Yankee. <laughs> yeah, I love that line that you're not a gentleman. Like, how dare you? This is so ungentleman. Like, I might have to use that. <laughs> That's so awesome. All right, Dallin, looks like you're up next. Dallin, how have you liked being on the podcast? Well, I think it was the second episode where I started with you, mm -hmm. and we were in a linen closet. With maybe like two and a half At by least. five feet of room with a laptop, some form of table, and we were just sitting on the floor. So, uh, and then we didn't do it right, so we had to do it again. So that was like two and a half hours in that linen closet. Anyway, I'm glad to be here in the studio. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're upgrading. We're making a studio. It's almost done. We'll do some videos after it's all completed. But yeah, we're moving up. We've learned a lot. It's very all of hype. This. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what was one of your favorite moments? I think this was maybe my second one. And this is kind of when, like, the operation kind of kicked up a little bit. We had the, you were in your closet this we time. We to the, the master closet. The master closet. It was a little better. <laughs> Fancy closet. Um, no, it was the uh, the Jingle Bells one. We call that Jingle All the Way. <laughs> one of the other four lyrics in that song. Close enough. It's a holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> one horse open sleigh about James Pierpont, um, who wrote Jingle Bells. Um, I just thought that one was such a hoot because it was just so random. I mean, yeah. we're trying to talk about some guy. You thought he was just going to be some musical composer who wrote a song, but he was like a failed gold miner, like a Confederate clerk. <laughs> Not even in the war. He was a clerk. Um, <laughs> yeah, it we, was a great story. We were just off our, like one of those episodes, I think we were just off our rocker. It was really fun, though. Um, then at the end, we're like, oh, hey, we should sing Jingle Bells for this just to kind of like, you know, like tie in the episode. And I was like, okay, um, I'm going to go get my banjo. Let's <laughs> let's have a little bit more fun with this. And yeah. we went all out. We went and grabbed a cousin, maybe a brother. Yeah, we grabbed Brett. Admit to that. And yes. uh, yeah, we went for it. We're oh. kind of musical family. We don't really talk about that part on the podcast much. But anyway, we had some fun here for Christmas. And at the end, you can hear Rhett calling y'all uh, filthy animals. So hey. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Open sleigh, or 
the fields we go, laughing all the way. Ha, ha, ha. Bells on bobtails ring, making spirits proud. What fun it, it is to ride and sing a sleighing song tonight. Oh, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Christmas! You filthy animals. <laughs> I love rats. I know. You filthy animals. It caught us so off guard, too. Oh my gosh. I love it. Oh, good job, guys. You guys are such good sports, no matter what we decide to do. Yeah, we're all great time. We're all silently dying here listening to Jingle Bells in the May. I just want you guys to know I was listening to that episode on Christmas Eve when I was out on a run, and I definitely sang along, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I probably looked a little crazy out running on the path, just like mumbling while running Jingle Bells under my breath, but it's okay. I was there in spirit. I love it. That's awesome. She was in the moment with us. All right, Randy, let's have you go next. You've been on numerous episodes as well, but what has been some of your favorite moments? What's one you want to share? So it was actually kind of hard for me to pick because there have been a lot of episodes I've been on. There's lots that I've kind of helped research. So hard. And I just, I listened to all of them, but... One episode that I just really, really loved doing was our New Orleans ghost tour episode. Oh, yeah. As well as the Marie Laveau episode. So for me, I really loved teaching you about all of the burial practices in New Orleans. And even though it was quite a morbid part of the episode, I just found it super fascinating. And that was like one of my favorite parts of going on that trip. And since (laughs) you announced that we were doing the podcast, it was the cemetery that I wanted to tell about from the beginning. I was like, oh, I can't wait to do St. Louis number one. So that one has to be one of my favorites. Yeah, and so different than lots of different places. So it was so interesting. I actually wanted to start off talking a little bit about what cemeteries are like in New Orleans and how their unique burial practices came to be. When New Orleans was settled in 1718, it was a new and inhospitable environment to settlers. This waterlogged land was the perfect grounds for disease to flourish, was thick with difficult to traverse land, and as we know, is prone to hurricanes and other harsh weather patterns. It also proved a challenge to provide adequate drainage and sanitation because most of New Orleans sits at or below sea level. With such a dense population in these circumstances, the mortality rate in this time was also very high and finding a way to bury their dead became a quick and gruesome necessity. In 1788, Something we have discussed here before started to happen that brought a swift burial reform. Do you want to take a wild guess as to what that event was? 
Yeah, pretty sure I know this one. Uh, yellow fever, maybe? <laughs> Tell me about what you learned about this time and how it changed burial practices. In short, the yellow fever epidemic was horrific in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It was one of the worst cities for this. So with a large population, yellow fever spread quickly. It killed many people in a short amount of time that caused enough death that they needed to find another cemetery to bury their dead. And this is when they opened St. Louis Cemetery. There was just one little problem with this new oh. cemetery. What would that be? This location was not as high above ground as the original cemetery. In um. fact, it is almost exactly at sea level. Oh. Right, so when they went to bury anyone, the graves would start to fill up with water. Even if the graves were able to be dug, so they started digging, they started burying people in the ground here, the occupants kind of had a difficult time remaining buried. Uh, what? <laughs> right? So they had a hard time keeping the bodies and coffins underground, and they would frequently <sighs> float back up to the surface. Can you even imagine? Okay, so, no. <laughs> uh -uh. That's a no. That's a no. Right. And I yeah. mean, these poor people, they're dealing with all this disease and death, yeah. and they can't even figure out a way how to keep their deceased buried. Aww. And they really tried. They really tried to come up with solutions. So coffins were often buried with heavy rocks or even oh. with holes drilled in them to try and keep them from floating back to the surface. But these oh, wow. solutions were just not working. Which brings us to the first above ground graves that were erected in 1804. And mm. by 1818, they were commonplace in New Orleans. Mm. They vary, you know, in shape and size, but I thought the amazing thing was that these relatively small family tombs, they can fit so many people. They can bury so many people in this one spot because of their innovation. From pictures I've seen, most of the tombs don't look all that much bigger than one, maybe two coffins. And I know that cremation wasn't allowed by the Catholic Church at that time. So how does that work? So this is where the kind of gruesome part comes into play. <laughs> Just FYI, <laughs> you know, I asked our guide that exact question. <laughs> yes, you did. Because some of these tombs have dozens of names on them. Wow. So essentially how it works is inside the main tomb, there are two sections, one slot above and one slot below. So essentially there's two vaults like you were describing earlier in each tomb. Mm. In the upper chamber, the corpse is laid to decompose. They brick up the front of the tomb and then by tradition are not allowed to remove the brick for one year and one day. Ooh, one year and one day. Why one year and one day? So that was what they deemed sufficient time for decomposition. Mm. And in epidemic times where they thought the dead spread disease, they also believed that was sufficient time for them to no longer be contagious. Okay. But this tradition still is held today in modern times. Okay. After this time has elapsed, the remaining bones are then moved to the bottom of the chamber called the caveau or receiving chamber where they remain at rest. Okay, so then another family member could be decomposing in the upper chamber. Many bones can fit down below in the cavell. Right, exactly. In the little cave. In their receiving chamber. <laughs> receiving yes. chamber, I love it. 
He is now going to the receiving chamber. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, a great euphemism for, yeah, their bones are in a pile on the ground. In, <laughs> in the lower chamber, in the cave below. Right. So, what you're saying is, is there's just a big mixed pile of bones down there. Like a little bit of grandma, a little bit of great grandpa, etc. They're just all kind of mixed up. <laughs> That's, I mean, that feels kind of crazy. We're used to the kind of sterile, you're in your little spot, and right. you're in your little spot, and they're just like, we all one family, <laughs> just throw us all together, it's all good. Exactly. So I, I'm not quite sure how it was then, but from what I read, at least in modern times, they put each individual in a bag, so all of the bones stay together of each person. But our guide had said when this form of burial was more recent that they would just open it up and push the remains back with a long pole and they would just <laughs> fall down behind oh. underneath and just sort of pile up down there like we're discussing. So okay. funnily enough, he said that that is actually the origin of the phrase, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so interesting, right? And part of why the pole thing was used was to limit contact with a potentially contagious corpse, okay. as that was still the belief, like we discussed. So if it needed to be a year before they could open up the tomb, what happened if multiple family members died in that time? I mean, I know that was super common, especially if we're talking yellow fever times. Right, exactly. So they had a solution for that too. Of course. And there are these separate type of tombs called oven tombs that, mm. well, basically they look like a bread pizza oven, <laughs> hence the name. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't for pizza back then, but they looked like an oven. <laughs> I think of it as well, a pizza. Well, you know, there's not anybody in our pizza oven right now, so we could make a big mix of pizzas before, you know, grandma kicks off. So they're actually built into the brick walls around this cemetery. So when you're walking in, you're surrounded by tombs mm -hmm. as well. And they are only temporary tombs just for the decomposition process that oh. people could rent out. Oh. And then they're moved to the family tomb after they have decomposed. So okay. yeah, tombs for rent. Yeah, I really loved that whole segment of just like the struggles of early New Orleans life and how difficult that was for them to just figure out how to bury people, so. All right, Mr. Porter. We have you next. I know you've listened to lots and lots of episodes and even co-hosted on one episode, which was really fun. What is one of your favorites? It seemed a little weird to me to say my favorite part is definitely the part that I was in and featured on. So I went with an episode that you guys did, but I have some of the background on and that was our Flagstaff ghost tour. It was a lot of fun. Doing a tour like on that tour. Right. And being on that ghost tour was a lot of fun being on that tour and learning about That was so fun. Yeah. Especially with the whole family and learning about um, these ghost stories where I grew up that I hadn't heard before. Right. And I think one of my favorite parts was a few people's least favorite part, but the meat man. <laughs> oh and, no! I, the, the, like, to me, the point of the ghost tours is the creepy stories. And so I know Taylor hates them and everybody else, Ew, right. but that was, that was the coolest part, even though I would never okay. stay there. 
Yeah, exactly. Not staying there. We have some members of our family that would say for sure they would stay there at the Monta Vista Hotel. And then there's other members of the family that are like, there's no way in hell I will ever stay there. So <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same side there. <laughs> yeah, hard pass. <laughs> yeah, the Weatherford has high class ghosts. The Monta Vista has the meat man. <laughs> you heard that right, folks. The meat man. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. The name doesn't do it justice. <laughs> it's so much worse than you think. <laughs> In room 220, all types of strange activity are reported. Evidently, in the early 1980s, this room was rented to an eccentric, long-term boarder who was known to bring his work home with him. <laughs> and since we called him the Meat Man, can you guess what his occupation might be? He was a butcher. He was a butcher. <laughs> and since he was bringing his work home with him, that apparently meant that he would bring raw meat back to his room and would hang it from the chandelier Ew. and all over his room. I can't. I just can't. I'm sorry. Ooh. Gross. <laughs> He's so yucky. Why you would think it was okay to bring meat back? I mean, it was a different time. It was the 80s. In the 1980s? I'm sorry. I lived in the 1980s. Guys did not bring <laughs> meat to their hotel and hang it from the chandelier. Mm -mm. <laughs> that is He crazy. brought his work home with him. <laughs> Sometime later, he died in the room he had been renting there, and he wasn't found for three days. <laughs> three days. <sighs> and he was only found because other guests at the hotel started complaining about a terrible stench coming from the area of his room. So when the hotel staff went to investigate, they found him dead with a bunch of rotting meat. Uh. It seems that no one had missed him. I don't know what it is about this story, but it just gives me just the yucky shivers just don't yeah. quit. Well, and it gets worse is the thing because it's not just him curing meat in his room. Now we're getting to the haunting part Oof. of it. It's said that in the days afterward, like only a couple days after they had found the meat man, a maintenance worker was there and he was fixing up the room, making it nice for other tenants. Of course, because there was a bunch of rotting meat and a dead man in there. Oh yeah, just stop there. Yeah. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so he left to go grab a fixture that he needed. So he turned off the lights and he locked the door. And when he returned from his very short trip that took maybe a couple minutes, the room was destroyed. The linens were ripped off the bed and torn. The TV was on full blast and all the lights were on. Creepy, right? Oh, it's so creepy. People say he is still around room 220. And guests can feel a chill in the air, and they sometimes complain of a putrid smell of rotting meat. <laughs> TV seems to still have a mind of its own, turning on by itself and on full blast. That seems to be his favorite pastime. Also, they discourage single young women from renting the room, because whenever single women rent the room, 
they seem to have the most disturbing things happen to them. <laughs> this is the part that is the cringiest. So We can't handle. <laughs> be prepared because it's a lot. So some of these single women that have stayed in this room have recounted that during the night they awoke to hearing whispering in their ear cold male hands on them while they slept mm -mm, mm -mm. and some even said that there was something wet dripping on them from the chandelier and what could that be mm -mm. from oh. the meat there's also reports of some people waking up with their feet wet under their covers. That is so weird. I don't even know what that is all about. Yeah. Like, oh, just thinking of feeling ooh. like whispering in your ear or cold male cold hands, male hands touching you. I just, I, I can't with this story. Like, okay, I I'm know done. the butcher thing <laughs> in and of itself, like with the cured meat and stuff, is gross. But then you add on yeah, to the, the putrid smells. Yeah. Mm. You add on to the fact that he's like a, a pervert ghost <laughs> makes it like mm. oh. <laughs> a million times worse. <laughs> you know what I oh, mean? Yuck. Like I can handle maybe mm -hmm. some ghosts if they're chill, but like a pervert ghost is like the worst out of everything. Yeah, it literally makes me so grossed out. I just get the worst yucky shiver. Like literally the whole time you've been telling the story, like there is this <laughs> shiver just like going up and down my spine and I'm the Ugh. whole time we were taking the tour and they, he was telling us the story of the meat man, I like held on to Marcus for dear life. I was like, no, there is no <laughs> way in heck. Even if someone was like, hey, I'll give you a million dollars if you stay in this room by yourself. I'd be like, no, mm -mm. no, mm -mm. not happening. Nope. No, thanks. I don't want wet feet and whispering in my ear with <laughs> male hands all over me. No, thank you. No, uh, thank you. Not the not meat the man. Meat man. Mm -mm. I would rather not. Mm -mm. <laughs> Gross. Why that is your favorite porter is beyond me because it's terrifying to me. It's worse than I remembered. <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> yep. Yep. Pretty much what I remember. Sounds like a homie. That's okay. We need to sell it. <laughs> I can't believe you. Oh, gosh. As you may have heard, we started our Patreon account and we asked our Patreon members if they would like to tell us some of their favorite moments of the podcast. The first one we have is from Lisa and Lisa wrote me back and said that one of her favorites was the interview with the Taffophile, Ed Snyder, where we talked about the headstones that had been removed from Monument Cemetery and thrown in the river. She says, I'd have to say this episode really touched me on so many levels. I felt sad, angry, and horrified by how little respect was shown to the dead. I enjoyed your entire conversation and it both educated me and my husband and infuriated me at the same time. How could people in any state be shown such little regard. To me, cemeteries are places that show great reverence. They are not to be vandalized by individuals or en masse as was done at Monument Cemetery. I've loved every episode in different ways. They've been deeply informative, some more casual than others. The voodoo and yellow fever stories with the girls are always a hoot. <laughs> and the fact that every member of your tribe is 
down with all the cemetery trips and have been infected with taphophilia is way cool. So thank you, Lisa. And here is a clip of your favorite episode. I, I write the cemetery traveler blog. Okay. Um, for my job, I, I travel uh, a lot around the U.S. So I've, uh, I've visited a lot of uh, cemeteries. I have, a, I have a special interest in abandoned cemeteries, mainly because uh, I, I, early on I could not understand how a cemetery becomes abandoned. Right. And somewhere along the line, probably about a dozen years ago, I, I came across um, a book by Tom Keels um, about Philadelphia graveyards. He's a uh, Philadelphia historian. So Tom uh, wrote a book, and the, the last chapter uh, had to do with uh, cemeteries that were no longer there in the Philadelphia area, and Monument Cemetery was one of those. And it, it intrigued me because, um, number one, I, I, I never really thought about why cemeteries disappear or get abandoned or go out of business. Right. And, and he had, he had uh, some vintage uh, photographs uh, of the cemetery when it was being uh, demolished uh, and what it looked like back in the uh, late 1800s. And he said something that really piqued my curiosity. He said the gravestones were dumped in the Delaware River, where they can still be seen today, and under the Betsy Ross Bridge on the shoreline. Oh. Uh, of course, I had I had to see that. <laughs> I would too. Well, yeah, but it's not. It, it wasn't so obvious how, how you know how you get to that uh, area. And so Tom was very, uh, very kind and offered me uh, directions and advice. Uh, uh, the advice was uh, uh, to be careful. Um, because it was kind of like no, no man's land uh, through about two city blocks length of uh, woods where ne'er-do-wells uh, hung out. And um, um, I, I went to the riverfront and, and saw the, uh, the gravestones. And uh, um, the, the nearest I could explain what that's like is uh, if anyone knows what the Stendhal syndrome is, I think it's S-T-E-N-D. H A L. It's it's not a, a mental illness, but it's a uh, um, it's it's some sort of psychiatric term that you are just transfixed when you see something and you can really not do anything else. You just stand there and you stare at it, um, and it's actually a, a malady, a psychiatric malady. Yeah, you're just gaping. Yeah, and and that's that's what it was like standing there. Um, really climbing down off this embankment of, of gravestones and getting to the river and turning around and just seeing these things jutting out of the, of the ground and scattered all along wow. the, the riverfront. So next we have one of our favorite listeners, Tombstone Huntress, who is also a Patreon member. She wrote to me and said, I just love all the episodes I've listened to. It's hard to pick a favorite. The information about the Victorian ages during the Savannah, Georgia Bonaventure Cemetery podcast has to be one of my favorites. And listening to the laugh of your daughter when she's talking about the jewelry made from hair of the deceased cracked me up. Both of your laughs are contagious. 
<laughs> well, we are so glad that we could bring a laugh to you. And even though we are talking about some really serious subjects sometimes, we always seem to bring some kind of element of hilarity to the podcast as well. They sometimes even made jewelry made with woven hair of the deceased. Ew. <laughs> Sorry, that's gross. Some families even created mementos using a loved one's hair. They made art pieces and they arranged the hair in shadow boxes. They made wreaths, fabrics, corsages, and particularly used it in jewelry. <laughs> I've seen some of these at historical places and museums where they have a wreath or something in a shadow box that is decoratively made or braided with hair. That's really gross. <laughs> <laughs> Although I love you so dearly, but I feel like maybe you would be one of these people that would do this <laughs> because you still have like my first haircut hair saved in a little do. baggie. You still have some of our like first teeth that we've lost somewhere <laughs> in a little. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair. But I don't see you taking it and weaving it into a wreath. or. <laughs> but you have these little things tucked away somewhere so you can remember us. And... Well, just know if you die, I'm cutting a piece of your hair. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Putting it in a shadow box and placing it somewhere you Take can it see out it all and... the time. Pet it. Pet it. <laughs> Please don't. I give you permission not to do I'm that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I think we've decided that I think it's pretty creepy. <laughs> but if I change my mind, I guess I'll let you know. It's not off brand for us. So next we have my mom and dad, or Grams and Gramps, as the kids all call them. And their favorites were Big Nose Kate, Windsor Ruins, and the one we'll play a clip from now. Friedman Town. So a third person, a third black person during this time was William Moore. William Moore was born about 1855 in Selma, Alabama. Moore slaveholder Tom Waller moved to Mejia, Texas during the war to avoid his slaves being emancipated. Tom Waller owned a herd of sheep, which William was made to be a shepherd. He says that his family of seven was often hungry, that Tom Waller wasn't keen on giving them food. They would often steal from the fields they worked in or catch rabbits, but it was only a small amount of food at a time. At times he was allowed to attend church on Sunday, but the white preacher always told them to obey their master if they wanted to go to heaven. They were allowed to sing in their cabins, but there was no praying allowed. They would often take turns to see if Waller was about, and then all kneel together and pray when the coast was clear. Aww. William said about Tom Waller, I believe he's in hell. <laughs> Seems like that's where he belongs. Yeah. He was a terrible, mean man. He just about had to beat somebody every day to satisfy his craving. He basically describes Waller as a sadist. Yeah. And just loved to torture them, basically. Uh, Waller would tie him into the ground and then make another enslaved man hold their head into the dirt while he beat their backs with a bullwhip. William was often made to watch and then asked to go get some salt. Waller would then pour salt into the new wounds, literally pouring salt into the wounds. Waller beat William's mother's back with the teeth of a handsaw just because he didn't like what she had cooked. Then cook it yourself. <laughs> she 
wore those scars for the rest of her life. His father was sent to work on a dam they were building in Houston. They were told after some time that he was running supplies on a wagon and a vine caught around his neck, causing him to crash. The wagon rolled on top of him and he died. I mean, that's just the story they told him. story. Which, I know that. How would that even happen? A vi- I mean, can you even think vine. of a vine in Houston? Oh, a vine. I mean, maybe back in that time where there's not, it's 1855, there's not big old stuff. There. Maybe. Still, it seems like the craziest story a that vine it's like. Caught around his neck, which flipped the entire wagon. That's crazy. Yeah. William, like in his interview, didn't totally seem to believe it. Yeah. But that's just what he was told. That's what he'd that's been told. Yeah. One day, William heard a loud shout. He came out to see his mother tied to a tree with the back of her dress down, getting whipped. He went crazy on Tom Waller, who lashed out with the whip, knocking him down. William then grabbed a rock, threw it at Waller's head, causing him to fall down. Mrs. Waller came out and tended to her husband. While she was occupied, he freed his mother and they ran into the woods. They lived there for several months until his sisters told him it was safe to come back. When they did, Mrs. Waller tricked him and tied him to a bush. When they fought, he knocked her over and she broke her arm. They ran and hid for a while. His brothers, who were the biggest men on the plantation, stole some shotguns from the house and walked up to Tom Waller. Oh, no. They told him there would be no more whippings or they would use his guns to shoot him. After that, it seems that things were better. When emancipation came, they were offered to stay and they refused. That, wow. Yeah, they were offered money. He offered them money to stay and they were like, um, yeah. no. That's... There is no way. <laughs> There's not enough money in this world, mister. As if this guy wasn't foolish enough. <laughs> he thought that would work. They left to his mother's previous slaveholder, who told them to stay as long as they needed to. They stayed until they found a small farm where they could share crop. His mother died in that little house. His brother started going to school soon after, but it was burned out by the Ku Klux Klan. <sighs> William did marry, have children, and settle down, where he was a resident of Freedmantown. Last but not least is yours truly. (laughs) I know. I have to say that I do love each and every episode. And I love that there are different themes for each one. Sometimes they're informative and we learn a lot about burial history or tombstone history or the history of a place. I even love the spooky ones and I have a dear place in my heart for the episodes that have been about our veterans. And so I'm going clear back to the very beginning where last year on Memorial Day, I told the story of a man that was very dear to me and to our family, who was such an amazing person and veteran. He was a prisoner of war in World War II. And when he was finally able to be freed and his first sight of the flag meant more to him than anything had in his life. And so I want to end with a clip about Lyle Grant in Shot Down But Not Defeated. The morning sun rose and the escaped prisoners headed northeast in search of General Patton's unit. 
We used the North Star at night to help us make it to the British lines, Grant said. We would use the railroad tracks when it got cloudy that usually ran east and west. After being starved to skin and bones, weighing in at 98 and just over 100 pounds, Grant and Klosowski reached the British lines on April 25, 1945. Sadly, thousands of American POWs died in the cruel death march. They were so weak that others needed to wash and clean and powder them for lice. The two were then given new clothes and boots. After attempting to eat normal food, they both fell to the ground in pain and with vomiting. Real food was too much for their shrunken and ruined stomachs. Two days later, they were flown to London and taken to the American-run 7th General Hospital. Lyle said he looked up and there waving in the English breeze was the most wonderful sight he had ever seen. The stars and stripes, old glory. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he raised his right arm and thankfully saluted this beautiful symbol. How grateful he was at that moment to be alive and free. He said, in spite of all I had endured, a very deep realization came to me at that moment, one that has lasted throughout my entire life. Any sacrifice, even giving up one's life, is worth the price to keep this flag free. On May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered. This merciless and deadly war in Europe had lasted for five long years, but it was over. The end had come. Inside the hospital, people were cheering, while outside crowds of people filled the streets, shouting and laughing. Car horns and air raid sirens were blowing, while low-flying fighter planes dipped their wings and added to the noise. At last, victory in Europe. V.E. Day. He and Klosowski landed at Camp Patrick Henry in Virginia on June 15th and had to wait for an official discharge from the military. It was so difficult to say goodbye as they parted ways. After all they had helped each other through, Grant said, There was no way to describe the intense happiness I felt as the bus pulled into my familiar Gila Valley. I saw Mount Graham towering above my hometown the fields of cotton, and houses of friends. All sights I had wondered if I would ever see again. The screen door swung open, and immediately I was in the loving arms of my mother, my father, my entire family. I was home. His mother made a feast to rival any Thanksgiving dinner and served him warm apple pie covered in vanilla ice cream, something that would literally wake him up in the night at the prison camp, only this was no dream. He had finally made it home. So it's been so fun to go over some of our favorite memories today and celebrate our one-year anniversary. And hopefully we'll have many, many more anniversaries. 
But most of all, I wanted to take a moment to thank each and every one of you. We are creeping up on 6,000 listens, and we're so grateful that each of you have taken that time each week to listen to the podcast and that you found something here that you love and enjoy. And we have really appreciated all of the things that you have given to us all the likes on social media and all of your comments and your support and love of the podcast, your Patreon support. We're so grateful to each of you and just really want to take this moment to say thank you. It's all because of you that we can do this. When I started the podcast, I thought it would be interesting. I thought it would be informative. I thought that it would be really fun to go to different places and travel and tell you guys about all of these different cool cemeteries. But I found as I've gone on that it is so much deeper and there is so much more that this has become a space where we can talk about grief, we can talk about death, we can talk about burials and people that have meant a lot to us and people that have gone before our ancestors and the people have done great things with our country and some that have done not so great things, but we learn from each of those things and each of the people that we have talked about in the podcast have come to mean more to me and means something to me and each story that we tell I feel for those people and they become real to us and so I feel like it kind of started as one thing but has evolved and I'm sure that it will continue to evolve over time as we continue to work on these things and I'm just really grateful and I hope that you'll all continue to follow and help us on our journey. So as we exit, we are going to dance it out to our favorite creepy party music. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. <laughs>